Part three, section one of the autobiography of Cockney Tom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Coos. The Autobiography of Cockney Tom by Thomas Bastard. Part three, section one. In those days, there were no telegraphs or railways, so that when I arrived at Port Adelaide, I had no means of making my arrival known to my wife and family and was unable to make a quick journey to the city, but had to be jolted along a rough road in a very modest spring cart. I was not even favored with a public demonstration. But never mind, thought I, stop till I get home, for there I know I shall meet a warm and loving reception from my dear wife and children, perhaps more so than if I had been the governor of the province. And as it happened, I was not far wrong. After a great deal of pulling and hauling by the children, and kissing and hugging by my wife, there was a pause, and then came questions and answers too numerous to mention, and amongst others there was, Have you been lucky, Tom? Yes, replied I, lucky to get home safely. That is not what I mean, said my wife. Have you got any gold? Very little, I am sorry to say, was my reply. The news of my return, however, soon spread, and the neighbors flocked in to see a returned digger, but alas, with very little gold. The next day I employed myself in taking stock, and it proved anything but satisfactory. But it was no use to grumble at finding myself in debt, as it proved to the tune of two hundred pounds, and with only about one to pay it, such, however, was the case. The first thing to be done was to call on all my creditors, report myself, and say, Have patience, and I will pay thee all. And I did so, and was kindly received. Mr. Johns had taken a shop in Rundle Street, and Mr. Sweet William was engaged as his shopman. What luck? said Mr. Johns, when I saw him. Very little, I replied. Do you get any gold? asked he. Yes, said I, and I have brought you a nugget for your kindness to my wife while I have been away. I won't take it as a gift, said he. I shall give you full value for it, and you can pay me what you owe in installments as soon as you can. As I believe you are honest, said he. Well, said I, I am as honest as most men, and time will prove that. I gave Mr. Johns the nugget. It weighed an ounce, and was a very pretty specimen of pure native gold. Mr. Johns was much pleased with it, and said, I will send this home to my dear sister in London, which decision pleased me very much. Whilst Mr. Johns was showing the nugget to his wife, Mr. Sweet William called me aside and said, Keep in with Johns. He is a good sort of fellow. At least I have found him so, and he is going to start me in business on my own account. So he will want a shopman, and you will just suit him. I thanked Mr. Sweet William, and told him I intended to go in for singing if I could get well paid for it. I won't lose sight of you, however, said Mr. Sweet William. I do a little preaching and singing myself on Sundays. I don't intend to stick to shoemaking myself either, if I can help it, said I. We then all adjourned to the York Hotel and had a nobler each. On my way home, shortly afterwards, I met a postman named Chapman. What are you back again? said he. Have you no engagement? No, answered I. I know of one, said he, where a man like you is wanted, a fellow that can please everybody. What is the salary? I asked. You had better call and make your own terms, he replied. You can mention my name if you like. Thanks, said I. But where is it? at the Black Horse Assembly Rooms, not far from the Black Bull Hindley Street, said he. 
I accordingly called there, saw the proprietor, and took the engagement at three pounds per week, and a bottle of wine to treat my friends with on Saturday nights. Not so bad, I thought, and much better than doing nothing. So I went home to tell my wife of my good luck. I had just got home when a clergyman came in and inquired for me. I am the party, said I. What is your pleasure, sir? I have been informed, said he, that you understand church singing, and your neighbor, Mr. Lily White, has recommended you to me. What are the duties? I asked. And what church? The duties, he replied, are to teach the children to chant and sing a few hymns, practice on Fridays, and morning and afternoon service on Sundays. We are holding service in the schoolroom until we get our church built. It is situated at Glen Osmond, about four miles from Adelaide. What is the salary? asked I. Thirty pounds a year to begin with, and refreshments on Sunday. And when the church is finished, I will increase the salary. I accepted the offer, and things went on smoothly for some time. I afterwards called on my friend, Mr. Hawksgood, at the treasury, who inquired into all the particulars of my family, and what they were doing. I'll take your eldest boy, said he, and see what I can do with him. I'll consult my wife, said I, and let you know in a day or two. Very good, said he. I will not forget my promise. If you want a friend, let me know. I will, said I, and wishing him good morning, with many thanks, I departed. I thought a great deal about my new friend, and told my wife all about his offer. She consented, provided the boy was allowed to come home once a week and go to church, which was agreed to. About this time the Crimean War broke out. France joined England, and all the world seemed up in arms and eager for the fray. Everybody said we should have privateers paying us a visit some fine day, who would burn our houses and send our wives and children adrift. Meetings were called, and it was decided to form a volunteer force, and every man was called upon to join, and, for myself, I thought the matter over seriously. Now, at this time, I had a companion from London, whom I will call George Rowlandson. We met together and conversed on the subject, and Rowlandson said that unless he had a chance to go in as a substitute and get well paid for it too, he would not join. I said I would, on condition that they made me an officer, which Rowlandson said was not very likely. A meeting was called at the Dover Castle, North Adelaide, to enlist those who took an interest in bloodshed. The most agreeable part of the program put forth was that each man was to receive six shillings per day when called out for practice, and each company was to have the election of its own officers, who were to be chosen by ballot. Each company was also to appoint its own shoemaker and tailor. In fact, there was to be everything to make the men comfortable. A neighbor of mine, a good fellow, whom we will call Mr. Sane, afterwards Captain Sane, and who had an eye to business, called on me and said, I think we can manage it. Manage what? said I. Well, I have been thinking the matter over about the appointment of officers for the volunteer force, and I don't see why I shouldn't be made captain with you as my color sergeant. It would be good thing for me, and you too. How is it to be done? said I. I will tell you, said he. After we are sworn in, you make a proposition that William Sane is a fit and proper person to represent the company as captain. I have a man who will stand for lieutenant, and if we are elected, you shall be color sergeant. I don't care about the job, said I, for it don't seem to me quite the thing, as everybody will have a vote, but to oblige you, I'll do it. The time came round for holding the meeting of the company for the men to select the officers, viz. 
captain, lieutenant, ensign, color sergeant, second sergeant, and two corporals. There were three cheers given for the queen, and then more or less all present got the words for liquor, and I went home full of the soldiering business. My wife laughed at me for being such a donkey. Never mind, said I, wait till the Russians show up, and then you won't laugh. Of course the Russians never did show up. Rollinson did not come up to the swearing business, possibly because he objected to swearing on principle. He acted, however, afterwards, as he said he would, as substitute for a man who had to go into the country. Another meeting was called, and the election took place. A poll was demanded, and my proposition carried. Mr. Sane got in by a majority of one vote, and Lieutenant Franklin, being a friend of mine, they decided that I should be Sergeant Tom, number one. My uniform, however, was far more brilliant than my military career was destined to be. In order to work myself up in discipline, I employed the drill-master to give me private instruction in the art of self-defense and military movements. So I soon became passable, but there was one part of the drill which I could not manage, and that was the goose step. I well remember, on one occasion, receiving orders from my colonel to take a file of men and proceed to Private Hornibrook's residence in Kermadote Street, North Adelaide, and bring him on to the parade ground to be dismissed from Her Majesty's service as a warning to all volunteers for getting drunk, which poor Hornerbrook was in the habit of doing. This duty I carried out to the letter, and when I arrived on parade, the men were standing at ease, and a great deal of giggling was going on ill the ranks. Private Rowlandson was laughing, so I called attention, which brought Rowlandson to stand at ease and dress up. The colonel called Hornerbrook to the front. Attention, shouted I, Private Hornerbrook, I dismiss you from Her Majesty's service. You are a disgrace to the company, and ought to be drummed out of the regiment as a drunkard. Now you can go, said the colonel. Thank you, my bunny, said Private Hornerbrook. On the first of every month, one of my duties was to go with the captain to the treasury to receive the men's money. Now it happened that the captain kept a public house, and one of my orders was that, after drill on paydays, I was to march the men four abreast from the parade ground to his house to be paid. The natural result of such a course was that the men spent the better part of their pay in drink. As a frightful example of this may be mentioned the fact that ex-private Hornbrook mortgaged his cottage and land to Sergeant Phelps, the landlord of the Scotch Thistle, for money to spend in liquor, and was never able to redeem the property. I merely mention this as an illustration which came under my notice of one of the evils resulting from the curse of drink. Such conduct didn't speak much for military discipline in those days. Happily things are much better in this respect now, and doubtless they will go on improving as the temperance flag waves through our streets. In those old times, however, I went on progressing with shoemaking, singing, and soldiering, and upon the whole was making a fair living. About this time a change took place in my position in life, by a gentleman calling on me to ask if I would sing at a concert for the benefit of a poor widow woman who had suffered severely in being burnt out through a bushfire and had lost all her property, consisting of a small farm and its belongings. The gentleman who called on me was a merchant in Grenfell Street, Adelaide, and having heard that I could sing in glees, requested my help to make up the number required. I said that I would most willingly give my services, but being under an engagement, I had to ask leave, 
which was granted on my agreeing to find a singer to take my place at the assembly rooms for that night. I went to the rehearsal, which was at the old theatre off Curry Street, and everything passed off well. The governor was there, and the poor widow had a good benefit. The next night, when I went to my engagement, I was told that after the following week my services would not be required. All right, said I, I can get other engagements as good. You may, said the landlord, but not at three pounds per week. As soon, however, as it became known that I was about to leave the black horse, I was offered one pound per night for two years to sing at the black bull, which I, of course, accepted. My next trouble arose through the clergyman of the church, where I was singing on Sundays, having a dispute with a Mr. Odsmond Gillies, who had given him the living, and a lawsuit was the result. The clergyman lost his living, and as consequence I lost the precentorship with its emoluments. However, I did not fret much about it, as it was a long way to travel to the church every week. I next joined the choir at St. Peter's College Church, in which Mr. Hawksgood, a friend of mine, took great interest. I sang sometimes at Christ Church, North Adelaide, at Trinity Church, and at St. John's Church, but mostly at the college. End of Part 3, Section 1. Recording by John Thomas Coos. www.validateyourlife.com